Section twenty nine of History of Egypt, Volume two by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter three. The First Theban Empire, Part five. The mining population increased so fast that two chapels were built, dedicated to Hathor, and served by volunteer priests. One of these chapels, presumably the oldest, consists of a single rock-cut chamber, upheld by one large square pillar, walls and pillar having been covered with finely sculptured scenes and inscriptions, which are now almost effaced. The second chapel included a beautifully proportioned rectangular court, once entered by a portico supported on pillars with Hathor-headed capitals, and beyond the court a narrow building divided into many small irregular chambers. The edifice was altered and rebuilt, and half destroyed. It is now nothing but a confused heap of ruins, of which the original plan cannot be traced. Votive stella of all shapes and sizes, in granite, sandstone, or limestone, were erected here and there at random in the two chambers and in the courts between the columns, and flush with the walls. Some are still in situ, others lie scattered in the midst of the ruins. Towards the middle of the reign of Amenemhaet III, the industrial demand for turquoise and for copper ore became so great that the mines of Sabrut el Karim could no longer meet it, and those in the Wadi Magara were reopened. The workings of both sets of mines were carried on with unabated vigor under Amenemhaet IV and were still in full activity when the thirteenth dynasty succeeded the twelfth on the Egyptian throne. Tranquillity prevailed in the recesses of the mountains of Sinai as well as in the valley of the Nile, and a small garrison sufficed to keep watch over the Bedouin of the neighborhood. Sometimes the latter ventured to attack the miners, and then fled in haste, carrying off their meagre booty, but they were vigorously pursued under the command of one of the officers on the spot, and generally caught and compelled to disgorge their plunder before they had reached the shelter of their doers. The old Memphite kings prided themselves on these armed pursuits as though they were real victories, and had them recorded in triumphal bas-reliefs, but under the twelfth dynasty they were treated as unimportant frontier incidents, almost beneath the notice of the pharaoh, and the glory of them, such as it was, he left to his captains then in command of those districts. Egypt had always kept up extensive commercial relations with certain northern countries lying beyond the Mediterranean. The reputation for wealth enjoyed by the Delta sometimes attracted bands of the high Nibu to come prowling in piratical excursions along its shores, but their expeditions seldom turned out successfully, and even if the adventurers escaped summary execution, they generally ended their days as slaves in the Fayum, or in some village of the Said. At first, their descendants preserved the customs, religion, manners, and industries of their distant home, and went on making rough pottery for daily use, which was decorated in a style recalling that of vases found in the most ancient tombs of the Aegean archipelago. But they were gradually assimilated to their surroundings, and their grandchildren became fellaheen like the rest, brought up from infancy in the customs and language of Egypt. The relations with the tribes of the Libyan desert, the Tehunu and the Timihu, were almost invariably peaceful, although occasional raids of one of their bands into Egyptian territory would provoke counter-raids into the valleys in which they took refuge with their flocks and herds. Thus, in addition to the captive Hainibu, another heterogeneous element, soon to be lost in the mass of the Egyptian population, was supplied by detachments of Berber women and children. The relations of Egypt with her northern neighbors during the hundred years of the twelfth dynasty were chiefly commercial, 
but occasionally this peaceful intercourse was broken by sudden incursions or piratical expeditions, which called for active measures of repression, and were the occasion of certain romantic episodes. The foreign policy of the pharaohs in this connection was to remain strictly on the defensive. Ethiopia attracted all their attention, and demanded all their strength. The same instinct which had impelled their predecessors to pass successively beyond Gebel Silsila and Elephantine, now drove the twelfth dynasty beyond the second cataract, and even further. The nature of the valley compelled them to this course. From the Takaze, or rather from the confluence of the two Niles down to the sea, the whole valley forms, as it were, a greater Egypt, for although separated by the cataracts into different divisions, it is everywhere subject to the same physical conditions. In the course of centuries it has been more than once forcibly dismembered by the chances of war, but its various parts have always tended to reunite, and have coalesced at the first opportunity. The Amami, the Irit, and the Situi, all those nations which wandered west of the river, and whom the pharaohs of the sixth and subsequently of the eleventh dynasty either enlisted into their service or else conquered, do not seem to have given much trouble to the successors of Amenemhait I. The Uauaiu and the Mazaiu were more turbulent, and it was necessary to subdue them in order to assure the tranquillity of the colonists scattered along the banks of the river from Philo to Korosko. They were worsted by Amenemhait I in several encounters. Usertasen I made repeated campaigns against them, the earlier ones being undertaken in his father's lifetime. Afterwards he pressed on, and straightway raised his frontiers at the rapids of Wadi Halfa, and the country was henceforth the undisputed property of his successors. It was divided into nomes like Egypt itself. The Egyptian language succeeded in driving out the native dialects, and the local deities, including Didun, the principal god, were associated or assimilated with the gods of Egypt. Kanumu was the favorite deity of the northern nomes, doubtless because the first colonists were natives of Elephantine, and subjects of its princes. In the southern nomes, which had been annexed under the Theban kings and were populated with Theban immigrants, the worship of Kanumu was carried on side by side with the worship of Amun or Amun-Ra, god of Thebes. In accordance with local affinities, now no longer intelligible, the other gods were also assigned smaller areas in the new territory. Thought at Peselkis and Penubsit, where a gigantic Nabk tree was worshipped, Ra near Der and Horus at Mayama and Balka. The pharaohs who had civilized the country here received divine honors while still alive. Usertasen the third was placed in triads along with Didun, Amun, and Kanumu. Temples were raised to him at Semna, Shataui, and Dashka and the anniversary of a decisive victory which he had gained over the barbarians was still celebrated on the twenty-first of Pakans, a thousand years afterwards, under Tutmosis III. The feudal system spread over the land lying between the two cataracts, where hereditary barons held their courts, trained their armies, built their castles, and excavated their superbly decorated tombs in the mountainsides. The only difference between Nubian Egypt and Egypt proper lay in the greater heat and smaller wealth of the former, where the narrower, less fertile, and less well-watered land supported a smaller population, and yielded less abundant revenues. The pharaoh kept the charge of the more important strategical points in his own hands. Strongholds placed at bends of the river and at the mouths of ravines leading into the desert secured freedom of navigation, and kept off the pillaging nomads. The fortress of Dare, which was often rebuilt, 
dates in part at least from the early days of the conquest of Nubia. Its rectangular boundary, a dry brick wall, is only broken by easily filled up gaps, and with some repairs it would still resist an Ababda attack. The most considerable Nubian works of the twelfth dynasty were in the three places from which the country can even now be most effectively commanded, namely at the two cataracts, and in the districts extending from Dare to Dhaka. Elephantine already possessed an entrenched camp which commands the rapids in the land route from Syene to Philo. Usertasen III restored its great wall. He also cleared and widened the passage to Syriel, as did Poppy I to such good effect, that easy and rapid communication between Thebes and the new towns was at all times practicable. Some little distance from Philae he established a station for boats, and an emporium which he called Hiru Kakari, the Ways of Kakari, after his own throne name, Kakari. Its exact site is unknown, but it appears to have completed on the south side the system of walls and redoubts which protected the cataract provinces against either surprise or regular attacks of the barbarians. Although of no appreciable use for the purposes of general security, the fortifications of middle Nubia were of great importance in the eyes of the pharaohs. They commanded the desert roads leading to the Red Sea, and to Berber and Gebel Barkel on the upper Nile. The most important fort occupied the site of the present village of Kuban, opposite Dhaka, and commanded the entrance to the Wadi Olaki, which leads to the richest gold deposits known to ancient Egypt. The valleys which furrow the mountains of Etbai, the Wadi Shanib, the Wadi Um Tayr, Gebel Iswad, Gebel Um Kabrita, all have gold deposits of their own. The gold is found in nuggets and in pockets in white quartz, mixed with iron oxides and titanium, for which the ancients had no use. The method of mining practiced from immemorial antiquity by the Uau'ayu of the neighborhood was of the simplest, and traces of the workings may still be seen all over the sides of the ravines. Tunnels followed the direction of the loads to a depth of fifty-five to sixty-five yards. The masses of quartz procured from them were broken up in granite mortars, pounded small, and afterwards reduced to a powder in querns, similar to those used for crushing grain. The residue was sifted on stone tables, and the finely ground parts afterwards washed in bowls of sycamore wood, until the gold dust had settled to the bottom. This was the Nubian gold which was brought into Egypt by nomad tribes, and for which the Egyptians themselves, from the time of the twelfth dynasty onwards, went to seek in the land which produced it. They made no attempt to establish permanent colonies for working the mines, as at Sinai, but a detachment of troops was dispatched nearly every year to the spot to receive the amount of precious metal collected since their previous visit. The king Usertasen would send at one time the prince of the nome of the gazelle on such an expedition, with a contingent of four hundred men belonging to his fife. At another time, it would be the faithful Sihathor, who would triumphantly scour the country, obliging young and old to work with redoubled efforts for his master, Amenemhiat II. On his return the envoy would boast of having brought back more gold than any of his predecessors, and of having crossed the desert without losing either a soldier or a baggage animal, not even a donkey. Sometimes a son of the reigning pharaoh, even the heir presumptive, would condescend to accompany the caravan. Amenemhiat III repaired or rebuilt the fortress of Kuban, the starting place of the little army, and the spot to which it returned. It is a square enclosure measuring three hundred and twenty-eight feet on each side. The ramparts of crude brick are sloped slightly inwards, and are strengthened at intervals by bastions projecting from the external face of the wall. 
The river protected one side, the other three were defended by ditches communicating with the Nile. There were four entrances, one in the centre of each façade. That on the east, which faced the desert, and was exposed to the severest attacks, was flanked by a tower. The cataract of Wadi Halfa offered a natural barrier to invasion from the south. Even without fortification, the chain of granite rocks which crosses the valley at this spot would have been a sufficient obstacle to prevent any fleet which might attempt the passage from gaining access to northern Nubia. The Nile here has not the wild and imposing aspect which it assumes lower down, between Aswan and Philae. It is bordered by low and receding hills, devoid of any definite outline. Masses of bare black rock, here and there covered by scanty herbage, block the course of the river in some places in such profusion that its entire bed seems to be taken up by them. For a distance of seventeen miles the main body of water is broken up into an infinitude of small channels in its width of two miles. Several of the streams thus formed present apparently a tempting course to the navigator, so calm and safe do they appear, but they conceal ledges of hidden reefs, and are unexpectedly forced into narrow passages obstructed by granite boulders. The strongest built and best piloted boat must be dashed to pieces in such circumstances, and no effort or skilfulness on the part of the crew would save the vessel, should the owner venture to attempt the descent. The only channel at all available for transit runs from the village of Aisha on the Arabian side, winds capriciously from one bank to another, and emerges into calm water a little above Nakhiet Wadi Halfa. During certain days in August and September the natives trust themselves to this stream, but only with boats lightly laden. Even then their escape is problematical, for they are in hourly danger of foundering. As soon as the inundation begins to fall, the passage becomes more difficult. By the middle of October it is given up, and communication by water between Egypt and the countries above Wadi Halfa is suspended until the return of the inundation. By degrees, as the level of the water becomes lower, remains of wrecks jammed between the rocks, or embedded in sandbanks, emerge into view, as if to warn sailors and discourage them from an undertaking so fraught with perils. Usertasen I realized the importance of the position, and fortified its approaches. End of chapter 29, read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.